Welcome to another edition of Cancer Specialist Medical Minute. With Dr. Rick and Dr. Danny. That's Dr. Rick. And that's Dr. Danny, and we're excited to be back. Is it dad joke time? I think it is. Oh, Brenna's excited. I think she's the most excited about these dad jokes. I don't know. You came prepared this time, so I, I really think it's you. Wait, last time he wasn't prepared? Well, I didn't have to print out any jokes for him this time. All right, fair enough. I'm bringing it to the table. Here we go. Where do you take someone when they've been injured in a peekaboo accident? I have no idea. To the ICU. So anyway, it's going to be a first here on Cancer Specialist Medical Minute. Uh, we have a guest for the first time. Some of the feedback we got, according to producer Brenna, was that Rick and Danny were really annoying by themselves and they needed someone to kind of add a little more flavor to the mix. Did you hear that as well, Danny? I heard some whispers of that. I think we have a great guest today, and I'm very excited to get started here. No, that's true. And we're going to be talking about immunotherapy. And we have with us one of our colleagues, Dr. Trika, who works down at our St. Augustine location. He's board certified in infectious disease and hematology, oncology. And he is going to teach us, uh, especially me, obviously, a lot more about immunotherapy. So welcome aboard, Dr. Trika. Uh, glad to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, it's it's good to be here where you know I get to feel more important than I really am. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. You're you're very important. But if you could just kind of give us a just a real brief kind of your background, how you got here, and join the practice. Great. So uh, let me actually back up a little bit. So I'm I'm originally from India, and that's where I did my med school, and I uh, came to uh, the country in 2005. Did my residency up north. Uh, this was a tertiary care center in uh, northeast Pennsylvania, a place called uh, Sayre, Pennsylvania, at the Robert Packer uh, Hospital. That was a community center. And then I came down as a faculty uh, at University of Florida at Gainesville in 2009. Did a year of uh, uh, being a hospitalist, and then I did my first fellowship, which was infectious diseases, for two years, and then I was a faculty. For, uh, for the two years after that. Now that's when I gained the passion for taking care of uh, immune compromised hosts and that's where I sort of like fell in love again with, uh, uh, with, with training, should I say. <laughs> <laughs> and went back and did my second fellowship uh, which was hematology oncology and, uh, and then here I am uh, to my friendly little town, uh, weekend getaway of St. Augustine. And uh, which means my wife um, thought would be a good place to raise our family. Definitely. Right. You're clearly a glutton for punishment with all that training. <laughs> and I got married, yes. <laughs> now I'm interested to hear, did someone talk you into or, uh, you know, talk you into learning a little bit more about hematology, oncology, or was it your experience in the hospital when you were on rounds and learning about the different patients? And what got you kind of interested in pursuing that fellowship? Yeah, it's it's quite interesting you ask me that. So uh, one of our uh, my mentors up in uh, when I was still in infectious diseases. Now he collaborated a lot with our uh, with my second mentor. Um, so the two were uh, Dr. Ramfall and Dr. Wingard, and they sort of like uh, they had a you know quite fine collaboration and uh, taking care of like uh, infectious issues in stem cell transplant patients. So one thing led to the other, you know, got involved in research during my infectious disease training, and then I sort of like was the go-to when I was a faculty for infectious diseases for the stem cell transplant group. And yeah, then it sort of like, it just kind of evolved in a 
in a meaningful meaningful fa- uh, way for me where uh, then i was like okay let's just take it up as a challenge and uh, get into oncology and uh, rest is history for my experience in bone marrow transplant it feels like we consult id about every patient uh it felt like that in fact <laughs> like in a good way i would say that you know i, I it gave me a very different perspective how um, you know, immune system actually really evolves after stem cell transplant is quite mm-hmm. fascinating. And to the day, I'm, 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 I'm still kind of, uh, I go back to the basics and uh, a lot of my understanding of um, immune reconstitution after transplant uh, is still down to my infection disease training. And uh, yeah, so I'm quite excited about uh, this topic of immune therapy. Mm-hmm. Well, allogeneic stem cell transplantation, that's a good mm-hmm. lead into immunotherapy. So, you know, I, as the radiation oncologist sitting on this panel, you guys are throwing out a lot of big words that are confusing to me and maybe to others listening. You said allogeneic stem cell transplant. Can you kind of walk us through a little bit more details what that actually means? Definitely. I can understand why that's confusing. The basics of an allogeneic stem cell transplantation are that a donor who volunteers to donate bone marrow can harvest their stem cells in two ways, uh, either from the bone marrow or from their peripheral blood getting hooked up to a machine which actually extracts stem cells. And those stem cells are used for patients who need a bone marrow transplant. Those patients can be patients who are afflicted by leukemia, certain lymphomas, and uh, certain, it goes into a lot of detail of which uh, diseases and which patients benefit from this type of transplant, but basically, there's a donor who's either related or unrelated to the patient who uh, gives their stem cells and are infused into the patient afflicted by that blood cancer uh, after a round of chemotherapy. And the benefit of the stem cell transplant is to eradicate any living leukemia cells or living lymphoma cells by using that donor's immune system and those immune cells to attack the cancer left over in the in the recipient. You know, probably one of my first kind of interest in hematology was was on the transplant uh, uh, ward and learning about these patients. And uh, um, it is kind of the one of the first immunotherapies um, in terms of you're using someone's stem cells and using those immune cells that are uh, donated to hopefully fight any residual leukemia lymphoma in the body. Did you have um, particular case or you know experience on the transplant ward that even made it more clear that this was your calling um almost like yeah that you know it's 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 quite funny it's and it's it's almost like very vivid uh you know uh, transplant is a it's a boot camp no two ways around it your immune system is completely uh you essentially you're dropping a, a bomb on your immune system and it's like literally rising from the ashes and for us it used to be like the the third through the fourth week you know that's when we used to literally be like you know there used to be a phrase called pray for polys which was uh, okay you want your uh, your your um, you know neutrophils which are like our navy seals you know the first ones at the scene regarding infection really saving us so uh, until that happened uh, you were really on the tender hooks about, okay, now what's the next infection? It's not if, it's when. And uh, you could almost predict by the week which infections you will actually might end up with. 
and uh, case I remember like you know I was rounding on a 20 odd uh, patient day when one of the stem uh, the stem cell attendings uh, which uh, you know uh, just said like you know somebody's having fever go and check him out and tell me what's the infection yeah looking up the nose was a practice back then and I'm glad I did because uh, we found uh, a mucormycosis uh, mm. suggestive necrotic plaque in the nose which, uh, yeah, just uh, knowing when the risk of infection uh, of a certain kind, which is a fungal invasive infection, tends to happen more so starting from the second week in a neutropenic state, uh, you know, can, can really make you seek because, uh, you know, your eyes only see what your mind knows. And uh, that case didn't end up well, but, you know, case in point being that, you know, how much your immune system really dictates your risk and recovery. Uh, you know, uh, a case like that, had the neutrophils recovered in time, probably would not have seen that uh, that uh, that unfortunate uh, infectious complication. Can you t uh, walk through, Dr. Tricker mentioned neutropenia, what does that mean and, and when a patient's neutropenic? So all neutropenia means is that you have a low neutrophil count. Neutrophils are white blood cells. And this is common after receiving chemotherapy. There are certain chemotherapies which cause more neutropenia or uh, eradicate those neutrophils, which are white blood cells. And uh, the significance of neutropenia is that it puts patients at risk of certain infections. Um, as Dr. Tricka said, these are the, the first soldiers to uh, go and travel in the body to the site of infection. And when you have less of them, infection risk is higher and uh, the severity of infection can be much higher too. Uh, so we have to recognize severe neutropenia. We have to um, sometimes put patients on antibiotics preventatively and of course if a patient is displaying signs of infection we have to treat it. That's pretty wild I mean I think you know the patients and people listening hear a lot on the news and there's TV advertisements for immunotherapy and it clearly is becoming more and more on the forefront but I think you guys are right I mean a stem cell and really is a bomb to the immune system and, and seeing the sequelae after that but can you give us kind of just a history and explanation for those of us who are less initiated with immunotherapy, kind of how we got to sort of this modern era of it? Right. So, you know, the immune therapy that we talk about or we, what we mentioned uh, is very different than, you know, you know that about uh, from an, something like an allogeneic stem cell transplant. The immune therapy we are talking about is mostly uh, the most popular and widely used are PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors which you know just from a very basic perspective the cancer happens you know i would say for two reasons one would be that uh, you know our immune system is blinded by the you know by the cancer cells it's almost like a, a break the cancer has in the immune system or something is feeding the cancer not that we eat sugar doesn't feed the cancer cells as best as i understand but certain proteins be it like uh, from mutations like egfr alg fusion red so on and so forth. So those are the two reasons and immune therapy where it comes into you know our benefit is that the break the cancer has on the immune system is what the immune system is able to uh, lift which then invokes the immune system into fighting the cancer. Now easier said than done because uh, you know we know for a fact that a uh, lot more people don't benefit with immune therapy than actually the ones who benefit. And, uh, but the, the catch here is that once it happens, uh, then for some of our cancers, the results can be just fantastic. And we've seen it, we've all benefited. And uh, you know, it, it's funny that all three of us, I would say, 
younger folks mm-hmm. uh, who've seen this evolution in the last, you know, I would say last decade where melanoma, kidney cancer, lung cancer, head and neck, to name a few, we've just seen some um, amazing results. One of the first things I remember when I started Oncology Fellowship was one of my first patients I treated was a patient with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. And at the time, we did not have immunotherapy that we can give up front for treatment. So the big decision was which chemotherapy were we going to give to this patient. Of course, we did have some targeted therapies, EGFR inhibitors, ALK inhibitors, but those mutations are quite rare. This patient did not have one of those mutations. So, um, you know, you basically choose a combination of two chemotherapy drugs, and the data is not good. I mean, the median survival in some of these trials was about nine months and maybe 12 at best. Uh, so you're talking about about half of patients are going to live, you know, less than a year um, with the best therapy available. Um, and I think, you know, as Dr. Tricka said, the uh, changes that have uh, been made over the past five years and the treatments we've been giving, either immunotherapy by itself or immunotherapy combined with chemotherapy have yielded far superior results, and particularly those patients that respond to immunotherapy because, again, the ones who don't, unfortunately, still don't have a very good prognosis, but the ones who do, uh, I mean, we're seeing cases of stage four lung cancer which appear to be cured, and that's almost unheard of, you know, in the era 10 years ago. Um, It's interesting, you know, I, maybe it's just a function of hype and everything like that, but it's important, I think, to understand, for patients to understand sort of what is a realistic expectation. And yes, I think when you have someone who responds well, you're obviously seeing things we've never seen before, but as medical oncologists, how do you guys, when you see a patient in the clinic who's a candidate for immunotherapy, kind of, you kind of, kind of walk us through sort of the counseling process, sort of saying, what is the expectation of response and side effects and those sort of things? Yeah, so I would say that uh, I started a very sobering note back in the 90s, early 90s, when we had really limited understanding of lung cancer per se. Everybody used to get chemotherapy, um, not knowing what cancer we're treating. So less than six months back in the 90s, a stage four lung cancer. Fast forward to the mid-2000s, when we actually understood the histology of the non-small cell adeno versus non-adeno. And yeah, I think the number doubled somewhere around the ballpark of 10 to maybe 13 months. And that actually held up for a fairly long time, from the mid-90s to 2005-06. Now, since then, um, fast forward to that, that next era. Um, I tell my patients that, you know, a lot depends upon the histology um, and then the biomarkers, where you separate out, you know, very clearly these days, like, you know, some people who have what we call actionable mutation, as in a, a target that we have a medicine for, which is about 25% of the entire group more so with you know, non-smokers and Asian populations we've seen, females especially, and the rest 75% which uh, you know, unfortunately uh, don't have a mutation as yet, but we have now the immune therapy. Now, the, 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 I would say the biggest benefit of immune therapy has been that, uh, that, that nine to 12 months, if you actually add immune therapy to our standard of care chemotherapy, that goes up, that, you know, to, 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 I would say, a median overall survival of anywhere between 18 to 24 months. And that's a range because, uh, you know, if you look at most trials, uh, you know, with different combination of drugs, 
plus their uh, the immune therapy, which whatever, like there's four, five, six options now, uh, gives you that range. Uh, depends upon patient selection, if you ask me. And to the to the most amazing accomplishment, I would say is that there's a small group where, uh, depending upon a PDL1 biomarker, what we call a high uh, you know expressor group, uh, there per the Keynote 024 trial, I think the five-year update just came out. There we are seeing a median overall survival like literally 24 months. All right, and that with only chemotherapy, non sorry immune therapy, non chemotherapy option altogether, which is just quite fascinating. And adding to it, uh, you know, there was a combination of immune therapy trial, which hasn't taken attraction much. Uh, this was uh, the Nivo, nivolumab and the ipilimumab not endorsing the product, but there's some group which uh, benefits amazingly, as in like people who respond to the combination at six months, and we don't know who that group is. Uh, they actually are living up to like the three-year survival is 70%. Okay, that tells us that A, the immune therapy works for a few people, but when it works, the durability is just amazing. The next challenge I would say in the immune therapy um, era is going to be finding that, that biomarker or biomarkers that can really help predict, okay, these are the folks you really need to give immune therapy only versus the chemoimmune therapy for the rest. I think that's been the challenge is, is the right biomarker because at best we're talking a high PDL one expression, 50% or higher. Um, response rates are still probably roughly 45 to 50%, right. maybe higher for the hundred percent expressors, um, slightly higher. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, you're, you're only still capturing about half of patients. And if you look at another marker that, you know, is reported in some of the next generation sequencing that we do on tumors called uh, tumor mutation burden. That's been studied more on the combined immunotherapy uh, uh, arm and high tumor mutation burden also yields about similar kind of results as far as roughly maybe half of patients with the high TMB will respond to combined immunotherapy, but, but they're great responses and a lot of the time durable. So. I think that's where the optimism comes is that, you know, you have a patient that responds, they're likely going to respond for a while and in a while meaning years, a while meaning possibly cure. Can you talk to me a little bit about biomarkers when you mentioned that PDL one, that sort of thing, what are, what are we looking at or what is, what's being done to check for those different things? So biomarkers generally are proteins that we're identifying on or in the cancer cells which can be uh, targets for certain therapies for different types of cancer. So we basically do this analysis on all uh, tumor tissues which are submitted. We request a uh, comprehensive analysis which gives us data on which proteins may have certain mutations which make it more likely for that patient to respond to a certain treatment. PDL1 is a biomarker used for immunotherapy. PDL1 is a program death ligand 1, and higher expression levels of this protein, PDL1, correspond with better responses to PD1 and PDL1 inhibitors. There are other biomarkers which are used in different types of cancer. Dr. Tricka uh, spoke to us about a couple of them being EGFR and ALK mutations. 
These are activating mutations which we think are driver mutations for why the cancer is growing in the first place. And we do have certain therapies which are beneficial to patients and can be uh, administered in pill form. So basically, if the cancer is pressing down on the gas pedal and your medicines may stop that. Correct. Yeah, these activating mutations which have uh, oral therapies or even IV therapies which can target them will put the brakes on that growth by targeting that mutation which is uh, feeding the fire. And I got gas and gas pedals on the mind. My wife and I have been watching the F1 series on Netflix. I don't know if anyone else watches it. It's pretty awesome. I've heard of Formula it. Formula One. Yeah. Uh, never really got into it before, but now I'm a huge Formula One fan after watching it. So highly recommend for the, for the listeners out there. Are we going to do a trip to Monaco sometime soon, Dr. Rick? Uh, sign me up. Are we allowed to go? Yeah. Of course. Yeah, I think of we're course. allowed to go. Yeah. As long as it doesn't interfere with the podcast recording. That's fine. So mean. I've got a Demanding. great idea. Great idea. We do an episode here. or two in Monaco on CSNF. Love it. Let's do Twist it. Perfect. <laughs> if you were to give advice to a patient or a caregiver who comes into the clinic, what key questions should they be asking um, you know, about immunotherapy or what should they be asking about their tumor to their oncologist to make sure that they're getting all the information they need? Yeah, I think um, you know, the question to ask is understanding what, what type of lung cancer or what type of cancer you have. And I think a good question is, what is the chance of response to this treatment? Um, I think the chance of long-term survival is really with immunotherapy based on response. And if you can tell the patient that you have a 20% chance of response or even a 50% chance of response, it gives them a better idea what to plan for. Um, because 20% chance, you know, they may need to think about planning and planning for, you know, possibly the worst. but. You, you always try to remain optimistic because it's hard to guess who's going to fall into that 20%. Um, but I think, you know, asking what are the chances of this working and, um, you know, reviewing side effects with them too, because there are certain caveats with the immunotherapy, even though they're much better tolerated than chemotherapy, uh, for certain populations of people, they need to understand what some of those side effects could be. I think the I think uh, that's totally agree with that. I would say that you know the first one of the things we we we, we tell or I like to be clear with the patients is like you know what's the intent, okay? Are we trying to cure or are we trying to palliate? Meaning you know that can make a huge difference altogether because now immune therapy we you know we are using it in earlier stages, which actually I feel we are curing, uh, we curing I think lung cancer, we are curing uh, melanoma, we are curing. Uh, well, kidney cancer, we'll see. But there's a lot of hope there. Uh, and, uh, and then, second thing is that immune therapy is like, you know, it's, it's, it's not immune suppressive. It's not like chemotherapy. This is something that, uh, you know, for the most part, if everything goes well, you might be on it for years together for the effectiveness and for, for, for your body to be able to put up with it in terms of tolerance. Now, in terms of, uh, you know, can't agree with you more in terms of giving numbers because that's such a big strength to a lot of our patients. But that one patient sitting across from me, for me, the big thing is that, you know what, like, I cannot tell you which side of the curve you're going to fall in. The best idea whether we're going to succeed or not is going to be a first scan. 
in three months, two, three months, whatever. Now that is going to tell us whether you're going to be a responder or not. Depending on that, now, you know, honestly, if you, if you have a response, chances are you're going to keep responding. Okay. Versus uh, if not, then yeah, we really, we are, we are then between a rock and a hard place. Okay. That's one. Number two, I would say that, you know, where immune therapy differs from chemotherapy is that A, for the most part, for 10 patients on chemo versus 10 versus immune therapy, chances are immune therapy patient is going to do well uh, in terms of, if not effectiveness, at least in terms of the side effect profile. Okay. But those two or three patients, the unpredictability of immune therapy, the side effect wise, is, is, is what the patient needs to understand. Uh, and, and the issue is that, you know, the side effect can happen anytime. With chemotherapy, it's very predictable if it happens. It happens, it's almost like a blueprint. With every cycle, how you feel, for the most part, you feel the same way, right? Immune therapy can be slightly different. You have this whole spectrum of side effects. Some people have none. Some people have skin rash, some diarrhea, some lung-related symptoms. You know, rarely you have some, okay, then yeah, thyroid issues. But for the most part, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite manageable. And you have the control with steroids. You can suppress the immune system, but immune therapy is not chemotherapy. No, and, I, and just anecdotally, as a radiation oncologist, I mean, to echo everything you're saying, it's very interesting to see in that vast, vast majority of patients who are on immunotherapy are tolerating it. Some, most of them don't even know, you know, wouldn't even know they're on a medicine if they didn't come in and get the infusion. Uh, and then you get the occasional patient that has a lot of issues, but it's obviously few and far between, which of course, makes a huge difference in quality of life and how they feel. So, no, it's it's amazing and, and very interesting to hear about. Let me make a side note here because we are in the COVID era and <laughs> patients may be asking, can what I gave get you that, a uh, idea? <laughs> COVID-19 vaccine during immunotherapy? And the answer is yes. Um, I try to advise patients to do it between their doses of immunotherapy, not the day before, not the day after their immunotherapy. Dr. Tricker, do you have another recommendation for a patient? Now, you know as much as anyone else knows, which is like <laughs> our, in our, our understanding is, is fairly limited. Mm -hmm. But I would say like, I don't know if it's out of context, but uh, there's a recent paper from um, in context of CLL patients and myeloma patients where they saw that uh, unfortunately, the response rates to COVID-19 vaccine wasn't great in terms of the antibody levels uh, being checked two weeks from the second shot, but wait for it. Nuance was that for the two months, two and a half months the patients were followed, not one patient got infected. So uh, point being that uh, even if it we think might not be effective, please go and get your shot. I don't think there's a downside. I mean, and that's the, really the right. point is, even if you're not generating the same antibody levels, there clearly doesn't appear to be downside to it. any downside to it. Well, let's move on to just another, uh, you know, interesting, I think, uh, part of immunotherapy. I think one of the uh, experiences I had in, in fellowship was IL-2 therapy. And this was one of the uh, therapies that preceded uh, your uh, immunotherapy that we give in clinic now, the PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors. Um, so IL-2 therapy is given in the hospital. It's a it's interleukin-2. It causes a robust immune response in the body, which um, largely was given to patients with malignant melanoma and, and renal cell carcinoma. Um, you know, the, the data for IL-2 uh, was not 
not as good in a unselected patient population as your your new PDL1 and PDL1 inhibitors. Um, Dr. Trigger, do you have some experience with IL2? Um, do, do you refer patients for IL2 in the current era where we have these immunotherapies that we can just give in our clinic versus sending a patient to the hospital? Yeah, it's 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 one of those uh, therapies that I just heard about and read about and know enough to not to think about. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, no, it was uh, it was one of those wonder drugs that uh, worked so well that it actually could be could be fairly tough and toxic. Yeah. Um, and uh, if my memory serves me correctly, I think the overall long term uh, benefits were seen, but I think it used to benefit maybe less than twenty percent of people, if that. Uh, but yes, back in the day, preceding the the PD one, the you know our our, our you know, I would say like uh, the PD-1, PDL one era, that was the only curative option that we used to. But having said that, every attending of mine or the teachers that I've worked with uh, used to gloat about it, how many people we referred back then, a whopping zero, okay? But having said that, I think we've gained so much from IL-2 therapies because that was our sort of like the preface, our understanding was based upon what immune therapy can do. And, uh, you know, I'd like to also mention, like, uh, just before, right at the cusp of ipilimumab coming through mm -hmm. for melanoma, which was our, one of our first success stories, okay? Right. Um, you know, just preceding that era, I had treated uh, a patient of mine with cutaneous melanoma. It was a stage three. Back in the day, we used to have uh, interferon therapy. Now, that used to go on for a year. And this very kind gentleman, uh, I used to work at the VA hospital back then, um, uh, vet, he was like, okay, I don't know, can you help me make a decision? And I'm like, well, I'm not supposed to, but I'll tell you what, if it's my father, I would give it to him. Not knowing uh, what the side effect uh, intensity can be, but obviously seeing the benefit, a first year fellow. So I had the right intent. I think maybe a month or two later, we had to stop the treatment because of, um, you know, it's like, you know how the side effects are much again like you get up with the flu every single day of your life right this guy is like i think months i don't know exactly when but like a few months down the road he's like okay i stop okay then he comes back and sees me in the clinic and he's like you know i just have one question i was like what he's like do you like your father <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's sort of like to me is like you know where the era we have come from thanks to the current immune therapy we have are such so effective mm. and, and the tolerability I cannot impress more is so much, so much better. And we feel like in so much more in control where the question is not about like starting or stopping and it is really benefiting versus like, okay, I'm gonna cure and I have the control. No, I think that's right. I mean, in, in going back to the original point of what's the intent of therapy and in the cases cure versus palliation, if the medicine you're giving them is causing them a worsening quality of life, what are we really accomplishing? So I think that's one of the most impressive things about modern immunotherapy is even if you're not in that super responder category, in general, people are tolerating it so well that it's you know worth a shot. You're not hurting them in the day-to-day the -day life, which I think is important to keep in context. Yeah, and my, my dad was on interferon when I was little, when he had melanoma the first time, and it was I mean, it was crazy. I don't remember a lot of it, but from what I do, it was insane. And when he was re-diagnosed, I kind of talked about it on the last podcast, but 
when he was re-diagnosed when I was in college, um, the Ipi and the Nevo had just gotten like FDA approved like two weeks before and they started him on it. And you wouldn't even know he was sick. And he's been, he had a tumor in his shoulder that shrunk and hasn't grown since. Spots on his lung that haven't, you know, done anything and are pretty dormant. And it's, it's literally like he's not even sick. It's incredible. So, I mean, just the comparison firsthand is insane. It's, it's wonderful that you mentioned that, you know, because the line between palliation versus, you know, cure, if anything has challenged more than, um, more than um, you know, anything is immune therapy. Because, like, you know, the chances of cure, we see that with every cancer. Not every cancer I'm getting ahead of myself, but like, you know, some of the common cancers, like we could have not, melanoma, I remember that, you know, having a discussion and, um, you know, somebody telling me like, you know, chemotherapy, like melanoma used to laugh over chemotherapy, eight mm-hmm. months survival, stage four. And now it's like, you know, if you don't make that mark, you know, somebody can question you why, mm-hmm. if it's not an option. I think, you know, to me, one of the important things, at least when I see patients, is you have to define terms. Right. And then, Dr. Turkey brought that up earlier, is really, you know, what does cure mean? What does palliation mean? What does treatment mean? What is treatable? Is something treatable, but is it curable? And these are words that folks in the non-oncology space, things get tossed around, patients get confused. You know, you go on the Internet, you read different things. Obviously, Dr. Google is always a... A dangerous game to play so I think that you know my message to patients and to caregivers who are listening to this is really ask your doctor really press them for those details because it makes a difference you know and, and those words matter you know and understanding the differences between those words matter and I think it really helps everyone involved frame expectations and what are we really trying to accomplish it you know in a given situation Right. Yeah. I think uh, even palliation, like, you know, that uh, it can be it can be used in such a good way. Like, you know, for me, it means like, you know, you're, you're maintaining goal, like, you know, quality of life. You're helping symptoms. And yes, you are going to try to kind of, you know, within that parameter, you're going to make them try and live long as much as possible. And, uh, you know, with, uh, with, and, and literally like cure is, I, I tell them in a stage four setting is a function of two things, a negative scan and time. Mm-hmm. The longer you have a negative scan and the longer it carries on that way, who knows? Yeah, that's one of the um, most asked questions, I think, people who are on immunotherapy for a stage four malignancy is, can I come off of this at some point? And right. it's a big question mark. I don't think we have clear, clear data. I mean, there is data coming out for different cancer subtypes, melanoma, um, you know, non-small cell lung cancer coming out with some data, but um, the optimal time, is it two years, is it five years down the road? Um, that has yet to be determined, I think. Correct. So. Correct. Yeah, I think, uh, I think, because it's amazing, because, you know, we talk so much about immune therapy and these targeted drugs, but the fact is we've just had them for an X number of years. And unless you really have those long-term, like, you know, uh, updates on these trials, um, you know, it's difficult to kind of take somebody off of treatment who's doing well and not having side effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, and what's also interesting, you know, as far as defining patient expectations and, and kind of looking at immunotherapy in cancers which don't respond very well to it, um, one of the 
cancers that come to mind where we use immunotherapy is small cell lung cancer. Correct. It does not have very high response rates to immunotherapy, but we all probably have a patient or two on immunotherapy who actually have a good response to it. Um, I think it's very challenging, um, especially, you know, in, in, I'm going to flip to a different subtype, but in bladder cancer where they've started to um, take away the approval for certain immunotherapies because of new phase three data that's come out that doesn't improve on survival compared to the standard treatments. And all I'll say is it, it is difficult because we all have patients that do benefit in these different subtypes that may not respond as well. Um, and I think it just, it definitely um, makes us need to have more research as what the optimal biomarker is and why are certain patients responding and why others aren't. And, and we're not there yet for those, those types, but I, I hope we do get there someday. Yeah, I think your point is well taken as excited we are, but yet we have to be cautious. Yeah. Not every cancer is melanoma, not every cancer is kidney cancer. For every one of those, we have small cell where the benefit seems like, what, month and a half in terms of overall survival. Um, and, uh, and you just might not be the perfect fit for it. So immune therapy, as exciting as it can be, in this day and age, we need to press our care provider. Uh, what is the scientific rationale behind it? And what are we really chasing? Are we chasing rainbows? Or are we really having an objective uh, scientific data? I think that's perfect, and uh, you know, patient selection is going to be the key. And I think as we do more studies, do more research, as uh, maybe different agents come out, we can really potentially hone in on finding that the holy grail. You know, someone gets a diagnosis, their tumor gets sent somewhere, they run every analysis under the book. Something tells you, okay, you're going to respond to this. This is going to work 100%. But obviously, we're we got a ways to ways away before we get there. But I think there's a lot of progress happening Absolutely. on that front. There are definitely labs looking into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, really appreciate your time, Dr. Tricka, putting up with uh, Danny and I. I know we're not the easiest people to be around. So, you know, I really appreciate you uh, coming into the lion's den and, and helping us out and explaining things. Because certainly you did a much better job than I could of it, explaining it. We really appreciate you being here. Uh, as Rick said, I think your expertise and background in infectious disease is really you know, enlightened a lot of people, given them a lot of good information to think about and talk with their providers. No, thank you so much. I think this is, uh, you know, fantastic to be able to reach such a, you know, I would say like a large group of patients, hopefully benefits. Um, and thank you for the opportunity, really. It's our pleasure. No, absolutely. All right. So wrapping up here, Dr. Rick, do you have any big plans this weekend? Any fun events coming up? Not really, to be honest. Uh, pretty boring weekend. Going to try to make sure my toddler doesn't destroy our home, himself, our dog, my wife. You know, standard weekend fair. Standard stuff. Well, I'm on call this weekend, so I will be on the road, um, hospital to hospital. You know, the wife, the kids have some birthday parties to go to, so that's always fun. So family gets to play while daddy is working. Is that the bottom line? That's how it is, Rick. Yep, that's how it is. How about you, Brenna? Going to see my uh, niece and my new nephew. Oh, so congratulations. Thanks. Very Congrats. Nice. Pretty yes. cute. We did his uh, newborn pictures a couple weekends ago, so going to go yeah. spend some time snuggling him. That's and, awesome. Uh, kind of love that. Brenna's a, also has a side photography business. I uh, do. We can plug it on the I podcast. Do. Yeah. We yeah. can, yeah. 
I'm sure your parents are already aware as the OG listeners. Um, you know, we actually have some more reviews. Shout out, Apple shout Podcast. out. So oh. we have four reviews now. Okay. One is from Anna and Keith, my OGs. Parents. Shout okay. out. Yep. Shout okay. out to the OGs. Yep. We love them. Um, the other one is from my roommate. Okay, nice. Okay. We like right. it. We like it. Was yeah. it a positive review? It was. Okay. All pos- they're all positive so far. Okay, good. Uh, Highlighting the dad jokes mostly? Or yes. Or? Yeah. Okay. Oh. Mm. I thought it was your intimate <laughs> knowledge of three-peats. Three-peats, yes. yeah. <laughs> Cleveland it, sports. And so we got another Shout one. Out. We, we got another review, and I was like, oh, this is great. I don't know who this is. And then my other roommate texted me. Oh. Uh, okay. So it was right. But then we actually have one that I don't know who it is, so. All right. To you, you, anonymous listener, (laughs) this episode goes out to you. We love you. Thank you for taking the time to subscribe, rate, and review. I think that's what the kids say. Yep. Yep. Someone's going to email me as soon as this comes out and be like, oh, that was my review. Yeah. It's it's probably my mom. Yeah. Yeah. Could be a family member. Where are your family's reviews? My mom listened and she said, I'm embarrassed to leave a review. And I said, thanks, Mom. I appreciate that. Nice no, she didn't. She didn't. I love you, Mom. She didn't say that. Did, did you so, get your family to listen? So I, my dad's listened, and I'm going to have to ask him about why I haven't seen a review from him. <laughs> um, he's not. Do you a, really want to ask him that? He's not an <laughs> avid not like typer, but um, he might be mad that I said that. But, you know, yeah. but I'm going to get Is him he to, a hunt, to hunt do and it. peck? Yes. I hunt and it. peck. Yep. Nice. Yep. Yep. He didn't have formal training, so that was the, no, that was the problem. Mad respect to the hunt and yep. peckers out there. Yeah. But he, he got quicker over the years. Nice. For sure. Yeah. Um, but, but we're going to have to see some some more reviews. You know, let us know. Let us know your feedback. I mean, we're happy to answer any questions on future episodes. So please, you know, if you have any questions out there that you'd like Dr. Rick or I to answer, could be medically related, could be unrelated to anything medical, we're happy to uh, give you a shout out and answer any question you have. So if you have any suggestions on things we should talk about, questions you'd like answered, or just want to say hi, you can email us at medicalminute at csnf.us. And make sure to follow us on social media. Search Cancer Specialists of North Florida on Facebook and underscore CSNF on Twitter and Instagram. And do I even need to put in the obligatory TikTok? Are we there? We're not there? Ooh. I made it. You made Ooh, it? No, TikTok no. account. Dang. <laughs> I really got happy for a second. I know. Aww. Which I wish I recorded your reaction. One of these days. One of these days we'll get on TikTok. As always, we appreciate you giving us a few minutes of your time and hope you learned something today. And remember, when it comes to your health, stay informed. Ask questions. And and tune tune in in next time. time.